You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual is ITK Principal David Leach. David, I trust you are well. I'm well, Giles. I trust our listeners are enjoying the podcast and uh, today we have a a very honoured guest. Look, very important one. Um, The rules of the national electricity market were written in the late 1990s and been basically governing the way electricity is traded and what have you on uh, Australia's main grid. Since then, they are now being rewritten and the body tasked to do that, as everyone probably knows, is the Energy Security Board. And today, um, well, tomorrow or, well, anyway, this week, the ESB is finally releasing its uh, options paper. Now, we did get, uh, now this is actually the sort of the, the, the draft proposals. We got an options paper in January. Now we're getting down into the nitty gritty and the refining their thinking. It's been sitting in Angus Taylor's office and other energy ministers' office for a month or so, and it's now been finally released. And we got to speak to Kerry Schott, the chair of the ASB, ESB, and this is what she had to say. Kerry Schott, thanks very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. A pleasure. I've got two quick questions before I hand over to David. Um, The first one is that you've said in the media release that it's really important to get this new design of market rules right. Given that the pace of transition is accelerating, as underlined quite clearly by the um, paper, And given the competing interests of customers and utilities and incumbents and new players in the market and state governments and, of course, the federal government, how hard has it been? Look, I think we're making progress. It's true that the um, state of transition is is fast and getting faster, Um, but I think... um, the fact that we've got this far is testament that some things are some things are working. Um, I think we've now got so many renewables in that it's um, it's extremely important to get the market designed in a way that can integrate both small and large scale renewables properly. Mm. One of the big criticisms of the national electricity market created um, just over 20 years ago, uh, and which this is designed to replace largely, was that it did not include an environmental element. I mean, there was one and then it suddenly disappeared before the rules were actually put into place. Are you has, has the environmental factor, and I guess this sort of focuses on climate change, been factored into your considerations here? Because I'm guessing if it was, then the focus might be on how to um, get the coal generators out as quickly as possible. If it's not, then it might be focused on how to keep them in as long as possible. Um, We're certainly not focused on the latter. But while there's um, um, just criticism for us not having a national agenda and a um, some sort of transition path mapped out to uh, an emissions target, 
Um, people in the NEM are well aware of the fact that each state has got exactly that. And most states um, have a target of net zero by 2050, and some are a little more aggressive than others, uh, in both in terms of timing and uh, in terms of the speed of getting there. Um, but every state and territory in the NEM has such a target, and that is taken into account um, in the work that we do. It's government policy. So, Kerry, I, I, I might ask then from that, one of the things that is discussed is the possibility of moving from uh, a state-based um, uh, support scheme, underwriting scheme for new generation of whatever kind to some kind of uh, more uh, coordinated or NEM-wide approach. Um, it seems to me that the states having gone their own way, it will be difficult to rope them all back into the corral, so to speak. I just wondered how the efforts on that were progressing. I think the main... Um, look, there's many facets to this, but one of the principal issues is making sure that we get the changes in the transmission systems that we need. And the transmission system um, in the integrated system plan and the rollout of that across the NEM is a nationwide uh, NEM optimised system. And it's very important that that gets done to enable um, the re large scale renewables in particular coming in through um, the renewable energy zones set out in the ISP. So um, it's... it's um, Coordination between the states around that hasn't been too bad um, and it could, of course, be better. But what we allude to um, in our comment about the various different government policies is that governments need to pay attention to, in particular, what their, what their neighbours are doing because they do impact... Um, the NEM, but also their near neighbours, um, particularly through the transmission links. Yes, look, I, 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 transmission is, a, is an interesting topic and we could talk on that, I'm sure, for 20 minutes alone. I'll just make an observation uh, that, you know, Energy Connect still hasn't got its final investment decision done, no matter how much preliminary work is, is done. And so... Um, it's not clear to me that the transmission is proceeding really at the required speed, but I, I wanted to move on for that because it seems to me that uh, amongst the proposals that you that we're looking at that are going to create the most interest in the larger generation side of things in, in front of the meter, if I can put it that way, is going to be these both the, the process for managing coal exits, but at the same time the uh, uh, possibility of a, a physical uh, reserve reliability obligation which looks somewhat like a capacity market and might incentivise coal generators to actually stay in the system. Uh, I, I guess, <laughs> how, how would you talk about that? I'm very happy to talk about that, Giles, but just before we leave Energy Connect, I think... Um, I feel confident that it will proceed and it's just simply at the moment in the regulatory approval stage. The, um, and the issue 
There is actually one of market design. It's being approved under the old arrangements, um, technically, and the benefits that you get from something like Energy Connect in today's market are not being taken into account. And I've got, it's quite clear it's going to be a very busy line because of all the renewables going in along it and it will also add to the resilience and system strength of South Australia. So these things are not part of the old assessment processes. So um, that needs to be taken into account, um, I think. On the issue that you raised um, about um, renewables coming in and coal generation, um, the report um, makes the... Um, point that with so much um, large-scale renewables coming into the system and indeed small-scale, um, the um, coal plants are under, in coal-fired plants are under increasing pressure um, and not only are they getting old and less reliable and uh, near the end of their technical lives, they're also under increasing commercial pressure and I was just um, wanting to make a point that um, everyone needs to really be clear that the commercial viability of coal-fired generation um, is under uh, Im Im immense threat. And um, these plants are not going to stay around um, for any number of reasons, but the main one is that they are going to be losing money. And the simple fact of the matter is that coal-fired generators have to run all the time. You can't turn them off and on. And it means that for many hours of the day, they are burning coal and not making power that can be dispatched. It's too expensive in, compared to wind and solar and pumped hydro, indeed, and batteries. And until everything that's cheaper in front of them in the dispatch lineup is dispatched, they will not be dispatched and they will not earn money. And this on its own means that coal generation is going to retire from the NEM. So those people that are worried about coal generators retiring should stop worrying about it. It is simply a matter of time. And I've said before, the coal-fired generation is going broke and it will continue to do that as more renewables come in. I accept that completely. We do our own price forecasting here at ITK and our own half-hourly modelling. And uh, I agree with every word you say. But nevertheless, you are proposing, or the ESB is contemplating, a, a physical renewable energy certificate, which to me looks something like a capacity credit. Perhaps you could just talk about, do you expect that to incentivise new generation, even as the old firming generation is going away? I expect it um, um to basically allow more renewables in the system because they will have firm backup. And the renewables coming in will get constrained off at some point. Um, and AEMO, I'll talk about what point that might be, but we do have to have enough firm 
to not only meet reliability but also to make sure that uh, system strength and frequency is there and the physics of the system uh, can be maintained in a stable state. So um, what we're intending to do, um, well, we're not, is to first of all consult with everybody for six weeks. There is no underlying policy um, within the ESB to do one thing or another. Um, we've put a physical RRO out there for discussion. And the way that that would work, um, if it's proceeded with, and I say if, and um, while some people seem to think it's okay, there's a lot of other people that don't. So um, we'll hear everybody's views on that and think about them. Um, if you've got a firm, there'll be certificates issued for the megawatts that you've got and the megawatt availability that you've got. And it will mean that retailers and large users um, will be asked under that obligation to cover their load um, with those certificates. Um, but then beside that certificate market, um, so you will get uh, some payment uh, for having firm if, um, if it's in short supply. And I must say only if it's in short supply. So if you've got a lot of firm in a place like Tassie or Queensland where there's plenty of it, um, then uh, your certificates will not be worth very much. Um, but if you are somewhere like South Australia or in due course New South Wales and Victoria, um, then if you own pumped hydro or a gas plant, you would uh, have a little bit of extra value added to it. So it really is designed uh, to make sure that uh, there is some dispatchable and firm power around that's needed. Um, and that's the way that it's envisaged. Um, it would work. Whether or not it actually works that way to bring new firm dispatchable into the system is arguable, I think, because contract markets, uh, you know, goes out about three years at most. So having demand out there um, for some firm for three years may or may not be enough to get more firm in or and in fact may or may not be enough to keep the firm we have got in. So I think um, there's a lot of consideration to be to be undertaken with this. I agree with that and I'm going to hand back to Giles but I've got two quick questions. One relates to exactly this firm. There's a time duration to firms. So the studies I do and read suggest that, you know, there's a daily firm which happens at, you know, uh, when the sun goes down, for want of a better phrase. And there's also a, a winter firm, if I can put it that way, which might go for a week or two. Would, would they be the same certificate? Um, no, the way AEMO would have the job of um, working out what people's certificates, uh, what certificates you would be granted as a plant. So if you were a battery for a large-scale battery, um, you would get, um, you know, one certificate per megawatt, say, 
Um, but you would only have those certificates for, say, four hours if that's your running time. Um, if you're a gas plant, uh, you would have them for longer. Um, and if you are a wind or solar plant, um, you would have them for uh, whatever percentage of time uh, you tend to run. So, you know, if you're a wind farm who's got a capacity of 65% a year, then you'd anticipate that you'd get um, certificates that were 65% of your capacity, say. Um, that's the sort of way it would work. And it's um, it's a bit like the French um, capacity market, which also has uh, certificates behind it. It's not a centralised um, capacity market because the uh, the retailers and the power users are all um, bidding in the market for their certificates, so you should get the least cost outcome for consumers. And if um, if you don't need the firm, then uh, your certificates are going to be, um, as, I, as I mentioned, like if you're Tasmania and you've got hydro everywhere, the worth of a certificate of firm is zero. Yep. I, I, I must say I've looked at so many uh, firm in market, capacity markets, but I haven't looked at the French one, but I will. And before I hand back to Giles, I just wanted to ask, the, the other sort of really big theme is obviously the integration of uh, 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 the behind the metre sector with in front of the metre and the associated theme, if I can put it that way, of moving from uh, centralised uh, spinning reserve, uh, spinning control of the system, uh, inertia-driven, physical inertia, to an inverter-based system of one kind or another. Are you, do you think the uh, proposals that you have here will take us along that journey in the right way? Look, I think it's early days on that, David. Um, we've got to get the technical standards right and we've got to make sure that we've got some more efficient way of managing minimum demand rather than uh, simply curtailing um, um, people's um, solar power, basically. Um, and we are on a journey with this. And I think over the course of the next 12 months or so, considerable progress will be made, but we do need to do it um, not necessarily orderly, but stage by stage. And in the paper, we um, have a go at just talking about what some of the more immediate priority um, areas might be. Um, but this is a very fast-moving area, and um, I think the road forward will um, emerge as we, as you know, once you're down it a little bit, you'll get more clarity about what to do next <laughs> it's fascinating to see how the sort of the the conversation around particularly distributed energy has has changed over the last couple of years from it being a potential problem to being um as as outlined in this report a um a, a notable asset and even though not everyone may have rooftop solar batteries or electric vehicle that the the assumption is that everyone would benefit if it's actually sort of um done properly and all the standards are met and um, and the right mechanisms yes. are in place um, can i just slip back to the coal capacity or or this sort of um, this physical RRO because that's 
is going to be one of the focuses, I think, of the discussion on this. You've talked about how that might work. What are the options then? Because a lot of people favour what they would describe as a flexibility market, and they argue that this might be more forward-looking in terms of the technologies that may be on their way or are already here and, and, and growing, such as battery storage and, and things like that. Do, do, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, the physical RRO does actually work like a ramping market because of the way that the certificates are, are managed. We were just talking about, you know, batteries which have a <clears throat> limited time life before they get recharged again. And um, the way they would be rated um, is different. But they're also extraordinarily important for ramping because it gives everybody um, um, four hours to be able to you know, get a gas plant up and mm. running or get their pumped hydro switched on. And um, it's, that, it's, it's that that's very important. And we see it working alongside um, probably um, what we've called an operating reserve, which is really aimed at um, making sure that we've got sufficient frequency and inertia. So... Um, AEMO would be able to know what it's got in reserve that it could reach out for if it if it's needed. Hmm. So when it's scheduling, it needs to know what it's actually got at, at that schedule point. Hmm. It, it sounds like you're reasonably attached to this idea. Um, are, are you sort sorry? Of what I what idea is that? The physical one? Uh, no, I'm not particularly. I made it. Um, I made it clear early on this is a consultation paper Fair and um, um, there are arguments uh, both for and against uh, the RRO. I think on the, um, on the against side, I think it's, um, its transaction costs are quite high for small retailers and, um, and just the setting up as a, of a certificate market is administratively expensive and all of the compliance that needs to be put in place. And you need to be clear that the costs of that exceed, well, at least than the benefits you're going to get from, from the firm. And I think if you don't have an RRO, then um, the alternative um, is not, uh, is not, um, an operating reserve of the kind we were just talking about, it is actually more of a um, jurisdictions um, intervening in the market as they're currently doing um, to get new plants built or to get plants to stay in that you uh, know that the system or you think that the system needs. So it's really quite direct intervention in the market through subsidy or underwriting or something. And we see that occurring now. I'm going to let David have another couple of questions. I'm going to come back with two quick ones at the end and then we'll be wrapped up. David? So this is the sort of central planning argument. I mean, one of the things I think about in firming is that it's really the job of the system, not a retailer, to ensure there's enough dispatchable capacity in the system. And, you know, if every... Uh, retailer is responsible for having enough firm capacity for its own load, there may be too much firm capacity in the overall system because of the kind of portfolio sort of benefits. 
I, I just uh, not exactly how. I mean, uh, let me ask a better question. How much planning do we need? And, and uh, a sort of related question, the, the market at the moment is, or the, the system is designed around separating market-facing businesses from perceived monopolies. But it seems to me that networks with so much distributed electricity have such a big uh, coordinating role uh, in the system or potentially that maybe it's not appropriate to think of them as just separate from everything else and, and, and a regulated monopoly. There are a few things in what you've just said. I'm not sure um, where you'd want me to start. I think the role of networks is changing, uh, particularly of distribution networks, uh, changing rapidly. And um, they... Um, certainly have a role in, um, I can see them having batteries within their network and the regulator is starting to change approaches to allow that to happen. Uh, they're going to basically become like service companies and be regulated for services, not as asset owners really. So I think um the role of networks has all of them, distribution networks in particular, as all of them will tell you, um, is uh, about to change drastically um, to make sure that we've got the rooftop solar integrated as well as we can and we, and we, um, we value it and use it as best we can for everybody. Um, the... Um, just in terms of retailers uh, don't have a role in uh, providing firm capacity, um, they're just the other side of the market. If um, they've got a demand for firm capacity at, at particular times, so um, and indeed at all times, if they're um, uh, at all times, they you know they're buying power and they want it to be there. So they're really just the other side. They're just the other side of the equation. Maybe just a couple of final questions then, Kerry. Um, your own views of the markets in the last couple of years, um, how dramatically have they changed in the sense of your understanding of the clean energy transition and what it might be actually be able to present and offer um, both consumers and the grid as a whole? I, I, I suspect it's sort of evolved quite quickly. I think the markets evolved quite quickly. My, um, I don't think my view on the markets changed that much, although I am amazed at how quickly um, the renewables have come in and the impact that they're having uh, right throughout the market is, is really profound. And we see it in the fall in emissions and we see it in the fall in wholesale prices. Um, but we also see it in the need for changes to transmission and distribution networks um, and I think uh, we will and we will see it in the way that retail is conducted and the role of aggregators and what can be done digitally with within the households and businesses uh, to basically shape loads and um, be far more efficient than we ever dreamed I think.
<laughs> are, you, are you looking forward to having sort of, um, sort of communication controls on your air conditioning and things like that? Do you, do you have solar and storage at, at your house? I've no idea whether you have a, um, a separate house or in an apartment or whatever. Um, y yes, but look, what people I think don't realise is that the appliances that they now buy actually come retrofitted with that stuff. So um, it used to be the case, of course, that water heaters were put on to um, run in the middle of the night when it was when power was at its cheapest, but they are now set up to run in the middle of the day when power is cheapest. So there's just been a complete upending of things. Absolutely. And one final question. Um, this report's been sitting on Angus Taylor's desk for the last month. Have you had any feedback from the Energy Minister? Um, I have. He's, um, to be fair, it's been sitting on all ministers' desks. Um, we uh, sent it off to the Secretariat to distribute at the end of March, as we were asked to do. It's a, um, a pretty dense and... Um, heavy report um, and ministers uh, agreed um, to release it for consultation um, this week. So um, we'll now have six weeks consultation on it. And I think it's important that everybody has a look at the four major parts of the report um, because the system is not just changing in one facet, it's changing in an you know, a whole number of ways, all of which are quite um, major. Mm. So um, where Minister Taylor is at with this report, he's supportive of the ESB work. Um, he's supportive of the six-week consultation. Um, he's very keen on um, making sure that we get the integrated system plan in place and the Commonwealth Government has been putting serious money on the table to assist with the development of that transmission. And um, we'll see uh, where the rest of it goes. Kerry, hmm. I'd like to uh, say thanks, as I'm sure Giles will, but uh, I, I really appreciate you taking this opportunity to talk about a very big piece of work that's going to drive a lot of people's future to our audience of stakeholders who I'm sure will be following it very closely. Good. Thank you. Thanks. That was Kerry Schott, the chair of the ESB. David, um, this is a fairly dense document. It's uh, more than 200 pages and in different bits and pieces. Um, a critically important piece of work because, as Kerry Schott says, they do need to get it right. They do need to take into account the incredibly rapid transition that we're going through now. They do need to be flexible and they do need to keep the lights on. All right, there's all of that. Look, uh, there are basically four work stream areas and kind of three time frames, immediate stuff. I'm not going to go through it all now, but uh, the, the work stream areas are resource adequacy. So that's making sure the lights stay on and managing the coal exits while that, uh, while and keeping the lights on. There's the system uh, services area, which is a lot of stuff we increasingly talk about frequency and uh, uh, fault current and voltage management, which I think is a very exciting area. The, and uh, allied with that is the third, putting distributed uh, energy, you know, behind the meter, uh, integrating that. 
And then finally, there's the hoary old arguments about transmission and uh, locational market pricing. I think the main thing to come through with it uh, was uh, that I heard was firstly that the you know the coal generation is going away. I mean, we all know that, but it's when when you have the uh, most senior person in the policy side of things at the federal level uh, saying that in, in so definitively, I, I think it uh, should be convincing to most people. And secondly, uh, I think what will be most talked about is this proposal for a uh, physical, uh, almost equivalent of a renewables energy certificate, except it's a capacity energy, capacity supply certificate, uh, and 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 you know how that might work and whether it will go ahead. And it was interesting to hear Ms. Schott say that uh, you know it was far from uh, something that would happen. It was only one of a couple of options. Look, there's clearly been a big push for it because um, there's quite a lot of detail about how that would work and possibly less detail about how other different options would work, particularly what some people like to call sort of flexibility markets. Um, there is a concern that this may lock in coal generators for longer than might otherwise be and how those, um, and you asked the question about um, how that might work for uh, big batteries because um, when this capacity is needed, it's usually needed in a short time and it's not necessarily for very long, um, which I guess was where the batteries came in but um, you made the, also the other point as well that um, the seasonal storage uh, such as for winter uh, for a week or two is also critical so um, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out as, as you say I just think that the discussion Charles, about the Charles for, 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 I don't expect many some of our audience will, will uh, read this document and some of it uh, uh, most won't probably, but if you glance through it, there's some great charts in it. Uh, for instance, this one that shows that, as we already know, that for some half hours, over 50% over fifty of the electricity being supplied is coming from wind and solar. That's already in 2020. And there's a chart in there on uh, page 17 of the A document that shows that by uh, 2025, it's expected to be supplying over 75 percent according to this uh, uh, for quite a lot of half hours uh, and up towards 90 or 100 percent that's an incredible achievement for wind and solar that's not the whole year average but it's just individual half hours and just shows that despite the lack of any federal policy for years and years now Australia is making incredible progress well, look, that's right. Um, another thing I'd like to just point out is, um, and we've mentioned this during the interview with Kerry Schott, was the attitude towards distributed resources. Um, if you go back a year or two, it wasn't that long ago, and everyone was flapping around saying, oh, rooftop solar, it's a terrible thing. It's going to make the grid quite chaotic and unstable. Now there seems to be a recognition that um, it's actually a fantastic resource, not just for the people who actually have it on their household, but for the grid as a whole, including all the other distributed energy resources, such as battery storage and electric vehicles. And I thought that was a really interesting point made in this paper saying that this could be a benefit for the whole grid, um, not just a privilege for a few. And that's really important, of course, the design of the various schemes um, needs to be gotten right. And there's a lot of you know controversy over things like solar export taxes and some of the inverter standards and the switching off capabilities that have already been introduced. Um, I'm not too sure whether we'd be able to get away from those things. It's really just a matter of how they are designed and how they are implemented. Um, David, probably moving on, um, we talked about, um, Kerry Schott talking about the um, the inevitability of uh, coal generators um, exiting the market, but um, not quite as quick as some um, coal, coal, coal company CEOs. We've seen just last week, we talked about Brett Redmond um, 
leaving the uh, leaving AGL, and since then we've had um, the Stanwell. Uh, Richard Van Brader has uh, has gone, and um, just recently, Energy Australia's Catherine Tanner is stepping down to be replaced by Mark Collette, or at least that seem that at least seems to be got some sort of planning behind it. Yes, uh, Frank Calabria must be feeling fairly nervous over there at Origin Energy at the moment. <laughs> Not really. Um, uh, look, uh, Catherine's been... Re- uh, Ms. Maybe Tanner just lonely rather than nervous. ...has <laughs> been replaced by Mark Collette, who will be known to many in the electricity industry and has effectively been, you know, been very senior at Energy Australia for a long time now. So I... I and. Energy Australia. I'm not sure that exactly where it's what its plans are or how it's what its life will be once your lawn closes. But I, I suspect that they face just as difficult transition. I, I, we spoke about the coal generators uh, uh, exiting the system and how that's going to be managed, and and the Energy Security Board's approach is basically going to be re- to require in the first instance a lot more information from them, most likely. And, and possibly require them to close in, in an orderly fashion uh, somehow or other. Um, but it's also interesting to look that the ramping is becoming a bigger and bigger theme. So that how we get this new dispatchable capacity into the market is, is going to be one of the really major issues. And another great chart from the documents shows that the amount of five and 10 minute uh, capacity that is capacity that can come online within five and ten minutes is expected to go up towards about fifteen thousand megawatts by twenty thirty and you know most of that is going to be batteries in addition to the existing uh, hydro and perhaps some pumped hydro so there are tremendous opportunities there and and i I do think batteries are still going to be where a lot of actions at over the next few years uh, but by contrast. The federal government, according to a rumour a, a that you, you've got to renew economy today, seems to be very keen on this new gas-fired station uh, near Newcastle. Well, they won't take no for an answer, will they? Um, Snowy Hydro is obviously very keen about it. Um, I suspect because it probably helps balance their portfolio and helps their sort of um, control over the caps market. Um, Angus Taylor's been, and Scott Morrison have been very keen about gas generators um, there for a long time. Of course, um, they've been sort of trying to sort of, um, they've been trying to sort of say, well, we're going to build this if the market doesn't sort of come up with its own um, uh, replacement for Liddell. But um, I guess if uh, if you've got a threat of the federal government building their own gas generator, then it doesn't exactly inspire confidence for other people to go into the market to do their own thing. So... Um, no, that's exactly right, Charles. Probably. I mean, AGL, Energy Australia and Origin will feel ex- that this is exactly what they were worried about. I mean, who wants to compete with a government-owned gas generator that doesn't have to prove, you can just say it's going to be profitable, that doesn't have to justify it to anyone particularly? No, look, that's right, yeah. Anyway, look, we'll wait for confirmation of that over the next couple of days. Um, in the meantime, David, um, you, we were talking about rooftop solar before, which seems to be the biggest threat to um, to the coal generators at the moment, particularly in the daytime. Uh, we saw some astonishing um, data coming out from the latest AEMA, Quarterly Energy Dynamics. Um, one was the share of wind and solar, but also wind and solar generally. Um, huge fall in uh, power prices over the quarter, huge fall in emissions over the quarter, no issues with reliability despite some major transmission problems over the quarter. And particularly in South Australia, where rooftop solar is particularly um, strong, accounted for 47% 
of total daytime generation uh, in South Australia over the first three months of the year, which led to the inevitable outcome that prices averaged minus $12 a megawatt hour over the first quarter. Yes, and that's certainly a problem for utility solar plants that are trying to get into the market. And we are, in my opinion, to, together with this uncertainty around all the stuff that's going on, the low prices, we're not actually seeing any more new announcements of new projects coming through, unless they've been funded by the federal government uh, uh, right now. Uh, and so that, that's, that's uh, a, a bit of an issue in itself. The other thing I want to point out, though, is that uh, if you know that's the March quarter, we're already nearly at the end of April, and in fact, demand has picked up, and electricity prices have picked up, and we're starting to move into the period of the year where we get less wind and solar, uh, and so there's more pricing opportunity, and also the coal and gas prices are, are much higher now than they were a year ago, much much higher, and so that's sort of feeds into the thermal electricity prices. So you don't want to get uh, too carried away with that. The other thing I just want to point out to listeners, and we, we talk about the wonderful benefits of rooftop solar, and they sure as heck are great, but, you know, it, it, we do have to pay for those as well. According to Asil Allen's report, essentially every uh, megawatt hour of electricity that uh, is delivered to households and business essentially has an $11 cost in it. Uh, that relates to paying for the renewable energy certificates uh, related to, to, to rooftop solar, behind the metre solar. And so as long as um, rooftop solar keeps growing at the fantastic rate it is, uh, and in fact keeping consumption down uh, for, for the other guys or production, then that cost is still going to be there. So <laughs> you really want to have the rooftop solar because otherwise you're paying for everyone else's. Well, that's also ignoring some of the sort of the obvious uh, benefits that there has been. I think um, um, was it the ACCC a couple of weeks ago came out with a report talking about how rooftop solar was responsible for about um, a, a billion dollar reduction in overall wholesale prices. Um, that's um, true. That's that's exactly yes. right. Not so, to mention the carbon benefits and all the other things. That's exactly right. No, that's right. Yes. Um, a couple of more battery projects during the week, um, mostly over in Western Australia, actually. Yolinta talking about a grid scale battery to be put next to a um, next to the um, uh, Illumina refinery over there next to its wager up um, gas terminal. It was going to build a cogen plant, but decided that was a bad idea. Um, the, the state doesn't need base load. So a fast response battery is a much better idea. And Twiggy Forest up in Fortescue, Fortescue has announced a contract for the two batteries that will go into the network up in the Pilbara. Um, so they're extending that network, pushing it further into the Iron Ore province, open up another couple of mines, power it with a mixture of um, solar, complete solar during the daytime hours, gas at night with the batteries. And even good old Scotty Morrison went up there and visited a solar farm for the first time since, um, well, the first time ever for him. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's right. So that's moving along. And then there's quite a lot of con uh, interest <laughs> and controversy uh, in North Queensland as well around the Copper String uh, 2 project and who actually is benefiting out of that. But these remote areas and, and batteries, uh, 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 that's all been uh, sort of progressing quite nicely. And I, I personally see the political significance of Scott Morrison visiting a solar farm. It's It's not really got any meaning it's a signal to, to his voters his supporters that uh, hey guys uh, this is what's actually happening well look let's hope so anyway um 
just one other thing I just want to mention. We talked a while ago about um, some of the new um, inverter um, smarter solutions for testing system strength. We talked in the past actually about the, the problems with the system strength uh, that uh, do no harm rule that was in, implemented in 2017 in a bit of a rush after the South Australian blackout and the Finkel review. Now the AMC has now decided that that's actually um, wasn't very well implemented, it's caused a bit of chaos, um, it's been inefficient, it's added to costs. So rather than having wind and solar farms sort of building their own, installing their own synchronous condensers all over the place, they're handing it back to the networks to sort of look at uh, sort of a holistic fashion, which is a much better idea, and also encouraging the new technologies, such as was implemented in North Queensland, where they had a major system strength issue. They got around it by fine-tuning the inverters, and the latest AEMA report discovers that there's actually been zero curtailment in the last quarter due to system strength issues, which um, I think is a win all around. Uh, it absolutely is. Um, it, uh, and that would be my, still my sort of comment about the ESB work in general, that we need to have – it would be helpful if we had a, 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 you know, a goal, a clear goal. It's – we're sort of still stumbling down uh, the road, uh, making the rules up after the technology's got there and after problems emerge. It would still be better to, in my opinion, if we had a, a clearer overall view of what the system would look like when all the work was done. But maybe that's impossible and maybe the muddle through approach, which after all is time honoured by all of us, including the likes of you and me, Giles, is the way to go. And probably our listeners would agree with that. And maybe that's a good point to, to wind things up at. Well, that's the way we've been getting through our podcast. No, it's an absolute good point. Um, just imagine if we actually did have a firm target and a plan. Um, I just think it would be much easier. But let's get back to that next time. I'm sure there'd be much to discuss with the ESB. Thanks very much to Kerry Shop for joining us today. Thanks to all our listeners um, for your feedback. And please continue that. Thanks also to our sponsors, Pylon and Evergen. Evergen and um, for your ongoing support. And uh, we'll be back in a week's time. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use, solid-design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.